You're listening to Trouble with the Truth, a podcast about journalists in danger and the stories that get them in trouble. I'm your host, Lana Istimirova. There's one topic that kept popping up in my previous episodes, and I thought it was time to finally address it properly. That is, of course, the coronavirus pandemic. You will have heard a lot in previous episodes about the way journalists and press freedom in general is threatened and undermined all over the world, and boy, did the pandemic make it worse. For example, in Turkey, the country that has the largest number of imprisoned journalists, reporters were in very real danger of contracting the virus while kept in overcrowded prisons. When Nurkan Baysal reported on that, she was called in for questioning by the police. In Russia, journalists were fined and threatened for investigating the state of coronavirus in hospitals and the lack of protective equipment. Across the world, media workers were intimidated, harassed, beaten and imprisoned for simply doing their job. Another trend that made honest reporting on the pandemic much harder was an explosion of disinformation and conspiracy theories online. Fake news and disinformation campaigns have been at the forefront of political discourse for a while, so predictably they continued to exploit people's fears over COVID-19. This is something that I wanted to focus on this week. What's it like for journalists when they not only have to inform people about the latest pandemic updates, but also battle myths and falsehood along the way. I talked about this with the most fitting person, Natalia Antalava, the founder of Coda Story. Coda Story is a digital media outlet that was made for our times, and it has produced some outstanding reporting on disinformation that surrounded the coronavirus pandemic and the war in science. They've written extensively on the way populist leaders and authoritarian regimes have exploited COVID-19 to their own benefit, whether it was denying the gravity of virus altogether or using it to crack down on critics and journalists. When we first heard the news about the vaccine, the whole world collectively exhaled, but there are still some challenges ahead. The anti-vaccine conspiracy theories on COVID denialism are thriving online and they're becoming more and more mainstream. Where do you think these myths and theories come from? How do they get through to people and how do they prey on people's fears? You know, I think all of them are coming from the uh, from from a similar place, which is, and the, that place I think is legitimate. Um, I've, uh, I think they're coming from fear, from worries, from concerns, from uncertainty. Um Throughout the um, COVID, and which has really amplified all of that, it really um, became, you know, I've been really struck by how many reasonable people have become really susceptible to um, to conspiracy theories around uh, around COVID and vaccinations. Uh, but 
you know, and and what amplifies all of it, you know, what amplifies is obviously our kind of collective anxiety about uh, the pandemic and about the kind of crisis that we've never really faced uh, before our ancestors have, but even they hadn't because it's taking place in this completely different environment in the digital world where everything spreads so fast um, and gets amplified so quickly and it's easier to manipulate it um, than it it was before. So I think all of that creates a, a kind of a mix uh, in which all the ingredients are old, you know, the gossip, manipulation, real fears, uh, conspiracy theories, uh, rumors, unsubstantiated theories, um, people's egos, you know, all of that. Each one of these elements is something that we've known and has existed before, but it's now has the platforms that it never had before, um, like social media platforms. The, the just general, our in, information infrastructure is completely different from what it used to be. So everything gets amplified and spread uh, much, much quicker uh, than it was. And then, of course, um, what comes into it. Um, you know, the, the the concern and fear and anxiety makes the ground very fertile. Um, and then the old players come in and sort of the um, recycle uh, recycle the rumors, use them for uh, their interests. And um, throughout the crisis, you know, we have watched how, you know, different actors manipulate the information um, in order to benefit their own agendas, whether it's the, uh, you know, the governments of Russia and China trying to bend the vaccine sentiments and like COVID uh, sentiments around COVID for their geopolitical purposes and use them as a soft power tool, or whether it's the anti-vaxxer movement that is jumping on that COVID horse and sort of saying, you know, new things that kind of also feeding into the fears. It's a really complex pattern of relationships between all of this, um, all of this um, kind of known elements and actors. Um, and uh, because the pattern is so complex and because, you know, it's kind of the underlying, the background of it is this new, this the pandemic and the digital space and the information infrastructure, all of that makes it much more, I think, f- fertile and makes it spread much faster. And obviously, as you mentioned, social media is a huge amplifier for these dangerous theories. And it's kind of a wild west with very few regulations where everyone can present their own version of the truth. And I find that it comes up time and time again when I interview various journalists, whether we're talking about journalist safety and the threats they receive online and different conspiracy theories that range from anti-vaxxers, you know, to fifth column. And for journalists in this difficult age, what do you think is the best strategy to tackle the disinformation? I have always thought that in some ways the answer to this question isn't very difficult. I think we just need to do what we have always done. We need to report on the events and the crises that are happening. I think this information crisis is a crisis that has caught us off guard. And this is like this predates COVID. Um, you know, I noticed it very vividly. I remember when I was covering the war in Ukraine for the BBC, um, disinformation coming from the Russian state media was such a big part of the of that war. You know, there were two realities that were happening. Uh, the one that was playing out on the Russian television, which was basically 
you know, talking about like horrible atrocities that were being committed and by the Ukrainians and the cities being bombed by Ukrainians and so on. And at the same time, the reality on the ground that very often had nothing to do with it. You know, we've had sort of famous stories of like children being crucified and then turning out that no, 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 no one was. But the thing is, what as journalists, what we missed back then was how that reality, um, you know, the fantasy presented on the Russian state TV uh, suddenly slid into the real world and became turned into the reality on the ground, you know. And I remember, you know, covering this war all the way, like throughout it from the very beginning. I remember at some point standing in that field with the pieces of MH17, the Boeing that was shut down over the skies of Ukraine and, you know, three nearly 289 bodies in the fields of sunflowers and thinking, hold on, a year ago, this was a kind of pretty much a fake war. And now we have these children in in the, you know, in this field uh, dead because of a war that was largely made up. And I have since come to a conclusion that journalists, you know, media at large ignored the war that was happening on Russian television before it came into their reality. Uh, We didn't pay attention to it. We treated it as these are the journalists doing their, you know, this is Russian Russian media doing their own thing. Like we don't need to think about like how it affects everything else. And by ignoring that element of that story, I think we missed a, lar- a much, much larger story. And I think that, um, you know, that that kind of lesson applies to everything else. We need to think hard and understand and report out how lies that are being told and disseminated affect real people and real time events. Um, I don't necessarily think our job as journalists is to you know, confront or fight this information. I mean, it kind of by definition, like the a journalist's job is to, you know, report truthfully. So by definition, it hasn't that element of sort of confronting this information. But I don't think we need to like think about it in terms of like rethinking our role as suddenly, you know, we used to be reporters and now we're like battling disinformation. That's not what we should be doing. We should be just reporting on it. We should be trying to understand it, understand who is behind it, understand the money behind it, understand the actors behind it, um, figure out how it works and figure out how it affects people and societies um, and then tell that story. Uh, but do you think this lack of regulation, um, say on Facebook or you know WhatsApp, uh, less so probably in Twitter, do you think it really obscures the role of a journalist and actually makes it more difficult to present the truth to people. So you kind of have to rise and become something else um, and do something more than just doing your job because there are so many more challenges surrounding your profession. Just before we got on this call, I was reading the Bellingcat investigation on the murder of of Navalny, you know, sort of how they did it, how they found that information, how these days an investment of 10 euros into some, you know, can lead to the most incredible discoveries. It's very easy to say that, you know, platforms have been terrible. Uh, And I think in platforms, I mean, Facebook and Twitter and so on. And I think in some way they have played uh, a really um, 
terrible role in undermining journalism and in uh, in sort of this uh, completely changing the ecosystem of information, completely changing it. But at the same time, the internet and the digital age and the platforms have also enabled this incredible investigations like Bellingcat just done uh, together with the Russia Insider and others, you know, um, they have enabled the voices that have never been heard before. And they have, um, they have in some ways made, look, I, I run uh, a small nonprofit newsroom um, that probably would not have been possible even 10 years ago because we're a global team. We're distributed. Our office is slack. You know, we work, we were, we were kind of doing the distance remote working before, before COVID. Like it's, it was, we published because uh, we have a way of reaching people on social media. Now, that's the kind of the good thing about it. Uh, the bad thing is that so is everyone else. And very often and suddenly journalism finds itself in competition with sources, uh, information sources that are uh, much more exhilarating and exciting than the, than the stories that we tell. So the dilemma is real. Like, what do we do? We need to keep, um, you know, we're suddenly competing not just within the industry. We're competing not just with each other. We're also competing with, you know, some guy, I don't know, in Tel Aviv who is like putting out pictures of his um a front porch or someone who is cooking, you know, it's the, the market is for attention and it has become um, much, much more difficult to to grab people's attention. But at the same time, and of course, you know, the regulation um, you know, we've now had, you know, how since 2016, when we when when the kind of the policymakers in the West finally began to realize that <laughs> the issue of regulation had to be addressed, that we, we couldn't just go on without thinking about it. So, but it's an incredibly, uh, you know, different governments are doing it in a different way. It's an incredibly complex, uh, complex um, issue. Um, and I think, um, uh, I think they, the, the, you know, what's, what's absolutely clear that you know, it's not promoting small publishers, independent voices, promoting uh, pr- promoting high quality news is not Facebook's and Twitter's underlying business interest. And they will always be loyal to their underlying business interests. So we either need to find a way of making it so, which is very unlikely, or making them, you know, sort of... Um, finding a way of uh, regulating them so that they uh, they promote quality journalism uh, in meaningful ways. Going back to the topic of pandemic, the media sort of became a bridge between the science and the people. But the efforts of journalists and scientists were often undermined not only by fringe blogs, but by head of states and high-profile politicians. Uh, You write a lot about Donald Trump and Bolsonaro and how they managed to turn the pandemic into a partisan issue, uh, presenting experts and scientists as some kind of elitist establishment stooges. Can we talk a bit more about the damaging effects that populism had on the pandemic and the way it was handled? 
Yeah, I th- um, you know, throughout the pandemic, we saw an incredible kind of alliance of COVID deniers, and it was just uh, it was just amazing to then see all of them get it. You know, so first Boris Johnson shaking hands and saying, boasting that he's not afraid, and bam, there he gets it. Um, then Bolsonaro, the same thing, then Trump, and uh, they got it, and then they continued to be pretty irresponsible about it, and they got away with it. Well, Trump didn't quite get away with it, but, uh, you know, they still, in large, I think, um, contributed massively to uh, to undermining science and science in general and i think there is a lot that we still don't know yeah and once again you know it's so and it's also complex because we saw in the beginning of the pandemic a very clear increase in trust in science and scientists and that's something that has been on a decline we saw so we don't know whether at the, at the end you know like will the pandemic in 10 years time in five years time when we look back at this uh will this be will science emerge as a winner or will populism emerge as you know as as a as a winner of this argument um it's very hard to tell still at the moment because we've seen it fluctuate throughout we've suddenly seen like a real you know we had suddenly doctors became heroes scientists became heroes um and then they were undermined again by the populist politicians so we're still in this like ping pong stage of what works and not and i think a lot depends on how effective the vaccine is how effective the distribution is how uh quickly we'll be able to get back to some sort of um normality even if it's not the world that we knew before and then i think we'll slowly start to understand um the effects of it um the long-term effects of it on politics and populism and um, and so on you know it hasn't i have to say it also hasn't been all very black and white and one-sided like for example you know we saw with um uh, uh, one one politician who um you know, hasn't, uh, who has been very much kind of pro-science has been Putin. We've seen none of the, none of that boasting uh, that has come from Trump or Boris Johnson or Bolsonaro coming from, uh, or president of Mexico uh, coming from Putin. He has been the opposite. He's been incredibly uh, careful. He's, you know, hasn't seen anyone. Uh, it's, it's very interesting how he's managed to isolate himself throughout it. And he's been, he's clearly, the, the, the Russians have taken it um, very, very seriously. So, and he is the Russian government is, of course, a government that has been incredibly populist in a lot of its rhetoric and its policies. So it hasn't been it hasn't been very sort of clear cut on black and white. But unquestionably, you know, of course, by undermining organizations like WHO, by uh, undermining their own scientists in their own countries, uh, the populist has fed into populist politicians have fed into the existing skepticism about what what can be done. And I think, well, the end of any year, especially this crazy year, um, it's December now, it's it's a good time to stop and reflect on the past 12 months and uh, maybe draw some lessons from it. What was it like reporting on this pandemic? Was there anything that surprised you? Uh, was there anything that didn't surprise you? <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, I mean, I remember, I remember sort of a little bit of a period through the spring and summer when it was just like every day you turn on the news and it's the new apocalypse uh, and the the election in the US and the Brexit and everything. You know, it has been it has been an exhausting, intense news year. There is no question about it. Uh, reporting on it has been, you know, what we try to do at Coda in general is really try to look beyond the the breaking news, which has been very difficult this year, uh, and um, kind of look for trends and be proactive in our reporting rather than reactive to it. And it has been difficult, but I think, uh, you know, we, we because so much has happened and so much is constantly happening and it's very difficult. And so there's so much uncertainty about how it will all play out. Uh, but I think there is still... Uh, you know, a real value uh, in in trying to do that in terms of kind of taking a step back and uh, trying to um, sort of look at patterns and trends and figure out where where it is that um, that we're heading to. And now you're going to ask me where we're heading to, and I'm not <laughs> going to have an answer. Uh- <laughs> Coda Story is one of the most innovative and informative digital media platforms out there. So make sure to visit them. I promise it will end up being one of your go-to websites. In the times of fake news and tacky clickbait articles, it's important to support quality, in-depth journalism that looks beyond headlines.